We're stepping into a new series that um, Jared's given me the privilege of kind of starting from scratch. And if you'd go ahead and put up that title slide, uh, here's the, 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 the title of the series, which is going to be four weeks long. I will be faithful to you. This comes straight out of Hosea chapter 2, verse 20. Um, and this is a beautiful phrase that we've chosen because it has three layers of meaning. Um, first, it has the layer of meaning as God is speaking through Hosea to his people, the unfaithful nation of Israel. And God says to them in chapter two, I will be faithful to you and I will make you mine, even as you're unfaithful to me. Layer number one is God saying to his people, I will be faithful to you. Layer number two is throughout Hosea, God is calling to his people. And as they respond to his tenderness and his mercy and his correction, they come back to him with confession and repentance and faithfulness. So as God says, I will be faithful to you, it changes something in his people's hearts and they respond back to him, layer two, and I will be faithful to you. Now, naturally, as God is faithful to us and we respond with faithfulness to him, the natural result of that exchange is that we become transformed people and who we are begins to change. And so we become the kind of people who are able to be faithful to the people around us, faithful to our friendships, faithful to our marriages, faithful in our societies. And so as um, God says he will be faithful to us, we respond, we will be faithful to you. And now as has transformed people, we're able to echo his call to the world around us and I will be faithful outwardly. Are you interested in Hosea yet? So last week, as kind of introduction, we read the whole thing of Hosea, right? And that was a lot. It was, it was 30 solid minutes of public scripture reading. And that's not something we do very often. And so it probably challenged some of our attention spans. Uh, Hosea itself as a writing probably had a couple of effects. There were probably parts of Hosea where you were just like swelling with the love and the mercy of God and so excited. And then there were other parts where like, it was just harsh. It was brutal. And we wrestled with it. Like, is, are these two things congruent? And so I just want to say, if you had a hard time with any portion of Hosea, just know this, God is willing to disturb us in order to get us unstuck from our unfaithfulness. He's willing to make us uncomfortable in order to heal us. And so I hope that as we continue through all of Hosea in the next few weeks, we bring some uh, reconciliation to some of those hard parts. Now, um, I want to acknowledge that one of the main images that God uses in Hosea is marital infidelity, adultery, cheating. And my hope is that we let God's word speak for itself. But also, uh, I want you to know that we're not callous. Uh, there's a number of us in this room who've lived this out whether it's in our family with our, our parents or someone near to us or with our friends and we've seen the destruction of relationship or we've walked this out personally and we've been the betrayer or the betrayed. Um, I would not preach this. That's something that is so painful unless I thought it was true and unless I thought it was God's word given to his people to bring hope and healing and life-giving correction. So my goal as we're walking through these really painful themes is not to be callous towards you, but to preach God's word while seeing you and walking with you gently, hoping that as we get into this, 
God's word will provide hope and healing and life-giving correction. Now, Hosea is meant to do those things, 100%. It's meant to give hope, give healing, and give correction. And Hosea is a prophetic message, meaning right from God through Hosea to Israel. So it's a prophetic message to Israel, to God's people. And God's chosen to anchor all of the writings of Hosea into the lived experiences of Hosea the man. Does that make sense? So the whole writings of Hosea are anchored to the life of Hosea the man. So if we understand the life of Hosea the man, we will have a much better opportunity to understand the message of the writings of Hosea. So that's what we're doing today, is we're gonna look at chapters one through three. Chapters one through three is kind of like an executive summary of everything that comes next. So one through three summarizes and captures the tone and the heart of everything else. And so it explains the beginning, the middle, and the future of God's relationship with his people. So where I want to start is I just want to read chapters one, most of chapter two, and then some of chapter three. Uh, I've chosen to um, use the New Living Translation or the NLT because I think it's just a little bit more accessible, the language it uses. Uh, So if you have a different Bible, different translation, feel free to follow along. But if you'd like, uh, there's a QR code up on the screen. You can snap that on your phone and it'll take you to our website. There's a New Living Translation that you can just scroll on your phone and follow along. So would you just jump in and read with me? This is Hosea chapter one, most of chapter two and chapter three. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, God said to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. And this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So... Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel, for I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon, Gomer became pregnant again, and she gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name your daughter Lo-Ruhamah, not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies and horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. Now, after Gomer had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and she gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, not my people. For Israel is not my people and I am not their God. And yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. And then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together and they will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, God plants, when God will again plant his people in his land. In that day, you will call your brothers Ami, meaning my people, and you will call your sisters Ruhamah, meaning the ones that I love. But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she's no longer my wife and I'm no longer her husband. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born. I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness. And I will not love her children, for they were conceived in prostitution. Their mother is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. 
She said, I'll run after other lovers. I will sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, for olive oil and drinks. Go ahead and skip to verse 13 in chapter two. But I will punish her for all those things when she burned incense to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me, says the Lord. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and I will speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her. I will transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. And when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. Oh, Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips and you will never again mention them. And on that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds and the sky will answer the earth with rain and the earth will answer the thirsty cries of the grain, the grapevines and the olive trees. And they will in turn will answer, Jezreel, God plants. At that time, I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself and I will show love to those I call not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. And then the Lord said to me, Hosea, Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. And this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I, Hosea, I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. And then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days. Stop your prostitution. And during this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. And this shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or prince, without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we get into this, um, Hosea is so messy. Uh, it's, it's hard, it's challenging, it's beautiful. Father, would you speak to us? Help us, help our brains just like academically understand the words on the page. And would you help our hearts to respond to you, to hear you clearly, uh, not with preconceived notions, but to hear you clearly on the page. Jesus, we love you. Amen. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna let the movements of Hosea's life become our guides as we move through the whole book of Hosea. Does that sound good? Okay, so in those three chapters, there's four big movements. Movement number one, which is today, is chapter one, verse two and three, where God asks Hosea to take a wife. And he says, marry a woman, knowing ahead of time that she will be unfaithful to you. And the woman that Hosea chooses to marry is a woman named Gomer. Movement number two will be next week. This is chapter one, verse three through eight. And in this, Gomer, Hosea's wife, is unfaithful. And children are born into a broken situation because of this unfaithfulness. 
Now, movement three will be the following week, and this is kind of the middle of chapter two, what we read. Uh, This is not really a movement. It's rather a pause. It's this in-between space between movement two and movement four. And it's in this in-between space that there's this turmoil of, of heartache and anger and longing and compassion and mercy and love. It's this back and forth, not really sure what's going to happen. And then movement four will be our final week, October 30th, where out of this place of turmoil, Hosea and God act with actionable and decisive love, where they move forward with mercy toward their spouse, Gomer and Israel, who've been unfaithful. So today's focus is entirely on movement one, and it's going to be the shortest and maybe the simplest of them all. God asks Hosea to marry a woman, knowing that she will be unfaithful to him. And if I'm trying to communicate any one thing today, it's this. God views his relationship with his people as a marriage. It sounds really simple, but it's hard for a lot of us and new for many of us. Here's what I want to communicate, that if you've received God's grace through faith in Jesus, you are part of this marriage relationship. And this is good news. God views his relationship with his people as a marriage, and this is good news. Here's a roadmap for the rest of today. Here's what we're doing. First, we're going to reread the first couple verses of chapter one, and we're going to look at the two primary people in this section, Hosea and Gomer. And we're going to look at what do they represent in God's mind? Then we're going to move on, and we're going to look at the biblical history that God has married his people, and that you and I, if we're covered by Jesus, are part of that marriage. And then we're going to end by simply looking at what kind of marriage is God describing? And what does it mean for you and I to respond wholeheartedly? So with that, would you turn back to Hosea chapter one, verses one through three. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. And Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, God said to Hosea, go marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. And this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. In this movement, there's two primary people, right? Hosea, Gomer. Now, here's a short on Hosea. Hosea was a prophet, right? We know it was about the year 750 BC. That's roughly 3,000 years ago. And we know that his career as a prophet lasted about 25 years. We know all this because of the very first sentence in chapter one. We know based on who those kings were in the historical records we have, that he would have lived about this time in history. And it would have lasted about this long. Now, in this, um, Hosea is speaking to Israel after they've split into two nations due to civil war. There's the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. And Hosea is kind of speaking to both, but primarily to Israel. And now Hosea in this, uh, we're told very clearly that Hosea represents God as a husband in the relationship. What Hosea is living out with his wife, God is living out with Israel. The second main character or the main person, because these are real people, is a woman named Gomer, and she's wife loved by Hosea. Now, we know here that um, she is a prostitute or is in prostitution. Uh, other languages or other translations will use the language of whoredom. Um, and we don't really know, the language is kind of unclear, is 
was she unfaithful? Was she acting in prostitution before or after her marriage to Hosea? We don't really know. It's unclear. Um, but it really doesn't matter, right? What matters is that she is unfaithful in her marriage relationship. And we also know because of chapter two that it's of her own decision. We know if you look at chapter two, verse five, we see very clearly that God is speaking of the nation of Israel as well as Gomer. Uh, if halfway through verse five, it says this, she, Gomer, or Israel says, I will run after other lovers. I will sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, for olive oil and drinks. And for this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her, wall, or block her with a wall to make her lose her way. But when she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but won't find them. And then she will think, I might as well return to my husband for I was better off with him than I am now. My point in that is we don't really know when she's unfaithful, but, we know, but when she's unfaithful, but we know it's her own act of volition. Now, here's a weird question. Why did God choose real life people to live this out? Like, why didn't God just say, Hosea, I've got a message, go and teach this. Why did God say, Hosea, I need you to live this out firsthand before you go and become a prophet to my people? I believe it's because God wanted his messenger to have his heart. And if I could explain that with two contrasting people with two contrasting hills. Uh, are you guys familiar with um, the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament? This is the guy with the fish, right? Uh, God sends Jonah to um, the town of Nineveh and God asks Jonah to go and, and ask all these people who are living in sin, worshiping idols, he asks them to repent. And Jonah, you, you guys kind of know the story. Jonah says, no way. And he goes and runs away and he ends up jumping off a boat and eaten by a fish. Now, after Jonah finally gets to Nineveh and, and calls the people and the king to repent and to stop their idolatry, um, the people actually do. Like they, they, they like put on sackcloth and ashes. They, they kind of ceremonially mourn. And, but there's this point in that story where Jonah's up on the hill and the city is actually repentant and Jonah's throwing a, a tissy fit. Jonah's mad. He doesn't actually want the people to repent. He wants punishment. He wants justice. He's like, God, they don't even deserve this. Jonah's on the outside looking in full of criticism and judgment. Now I'd contrast that with the person of Jesus Christ. And we see this in, in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is overlooking the city of Jerusalem and he's come to Jerusalem with a similar message of repentance and faithfulness. But Jerusalem has not repented and is not responding with faith. But Jesus, as God's messenger is on a hill overlooking the city and he weeps. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, if only you would turn, how I would gather you to me, how quickly I would step in with mercy. And Jesus weeps out of love for his people. I believe the reason that God asked Hosea to live this out first person is because God wanted Hosea to have his message and his heart. Where Jonah had the message, but not the heart, Hosea, because of what he lived out, had the message and the heart. Rather than looking from the outside in with criticism and judgment, he's living it from the inside out, yearning with the same passion and love and mercy that a husband would have. He's walked it out with his spouse and is now more fully able to bring God's message with God's heart to God's people. Now, the reason again that Hosea gets married is because he's living out a primary message of God to his people. And that is, I am married to you. 
That simple phrase is what we're gonna unpack for the rest of our time, that God actually is and feels married to his people, to you if you are covered by Jesus. And that makes it personal and it makes it hard, which is why when uh, God writes in Hosea, there's so many challenging things. It's because he's hurt in the same way that a real life husband is hurt. He's yearning in the same way that a real life husband is yearning for the restoration of his wife. Now, I wanna step into biblical history for a second. What's like the, the big story of when, when does this all begin? Um, if you were here a couple of months ago, you would have been with us when we did the sermon series, The Whole Story. Is anyone with that? Great, so you guys remember that the story begins with the Garden of Eden, right? And as Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're the very first humans who choose their own desires over faithfulness to God. Does this sound familiar? They're the very first people that choose their desires over faithfulness to God. Now, unfortunately, God gives them consequence for their action. He sends them out of the garden. But as he's um, cursing them out of the garden, he also gives them a promise. He's saying, there's now tension between the serpent, spiritual evil, and you, my people. There's now tension, but I promise I will send a seed or an offspring that will rescue you from that. So that's the beginning of the faithfulness of God. The very beginning of the story, when God's people act faithlessly, God promises to be faithful. Now, after that, there's a couple of promises which you might be familiar with. There's promises between God and Noah, God and Abraham, God and Jacob. And then really importantly, where we're gonna pause for a second, is promises between God and the whole nation of Israel. This is where the whole marriage thing starts, and it's in Exodus. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, the story of Exodus, the nation of Israel has lived in Egypt for several hundred years as slaves, and they've been abused. And God goes to them with a proposal, and it's in Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. It'll be up on the screen if you'd like to follow along. God says this to his people, Israel. He says, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant or my promises. So say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you or rescue you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Here's the language. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And then God follows through with the, the 10 plagues of, of Egypt and the rescuing of his people and the, the splitting of the Red Sea. But all of this is to get his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. The wilderness is both a physical place, but it is also meaning like the lonely places. God is pulling his people out of Egypt into a lonely place where he's able to get all of the Egypt off of them. They've lived in Egypt for 400 years and he's having to get Egypt off of them and out of them. And so he's retraining them. Here's who I am. Um, some uh, early rabbis uh, think of this as like the honeymoon phase. This is where it's just God and just his people and they are together in the quiet. Now, uh, this brings us to Exodus chapter 19. This is, if you will, the marriage ceremony. God leads his people through the quiet of the wilderness, retraining them who he is. And then at the foothills of Mount Sinai, the marriage covenant takes place. 
Uh, it's right here in Exodus chapter 19, verse two. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain and says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell all the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did for the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenants and my promises, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In many ways, this is the front half of the ceremony. Will you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Will you take me, O Israel? Here's my rules. And then the next couple chapters are God very clearly laying out what those are, what this marriage is gonna look like, what the, the covenant and the promises and the loyalty will look and feel like. And then it closes with Exodus chapter 24, when his people say, we do. 24 verse three, Moses came and told, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and instruction. And all the people answered with one voice and they said, everything or all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is his people saying, we do we will enter this covenant with you. We will enter this marriage. And from here on out, it's actually pretty common in the prophets where the prophets will use marital language. Like Jeremiah chapter three, verse 14. Uh, God says, return my, O faithless people. I am your husband. I will choose you one from a town, two from a clan. And we see this very clearly all throughout the Old Testament, actually. We see it in Ezekiel, Amos, like how much more clear can you get than Hosea, right? God is saying, I feel I am married to you, my people. I am married to you. But this doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It actually continues even more clearly in the New Testament. And at this point, I'm having to just like cut out half of my material because the, this language of marriage is like a pulsing artery throughout all of scripture. Like I literally could not fit all the words on the page. And so I hope to bring just a few more excerpts from you. Uh, if you remember um, in the four gospels, there's a few situations I'll highlight really quick. There's a situation where uh, John the Baptist is, is, is talking and preaching and some people are saying, oh, John, aren't you disappointed that your followers are leaving you to go follow Jesus? And John goes, no way. Like, why would the friend of the bridegroom be disappointed when all the attention is on the groom at the wedding day? That's what's going on. Jesus is here. The groom is here. The wedding day is here. Why would I be disappointed that the attention's on them? Later in the four gospels, Jesus himself, uh, he's with his friends and, and some people come up and they say, hey, Jesus, how come, how come John's disciples are, are fasting, but your disciples aren't fasting? And, and Jesus goes, why would you fast when it's your wedding day? The groom is here. Why would my fr friends and followers fast when the groom is here? One day they'll all be gone and then they'll fast. Uh, we see this all throughout um, the four gospels. Uh, we also see it um, in the, the future tense of the New Testament in Revelation. And I'm just gonna read two quick passages out of Revelation. Um, one thing about uh, prophecy, especially the main themes of the Bible, is there's this, this layer of already, not yet. Already, not yet. Meaning God's people are already married to him. And 
that relationship has not yet seen the fullness of what it will be. We are already married to him, but we've not yet seen it. What I mean by that is what we see here in Revelation chapter 19. Then I, John, heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And we see this again in Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, the home of God's people coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the home or the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, one tricky thing for us is Hosea was written to a nation on a different continent about three years ago. And so there's a bit of a hesitancy, probably for many of us to say like, well, what does this have to do with me? God says he's married to Israel. God said he's, he's married to those people, but where do I fit in here? And very clearly, like we know that there's this, this unifying reality that happens through Jesus. And I just wanna read two excerpts from that. We see in Colossians chapter three, verse one, that if you have been raised with Christ, then you should seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And verse 11 skips to say, so here now in the family of God, there's neither Greek nor Jew, neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian or slave or free, but, Christ who is all and in all. Meaning that if you are underneath Christ, the life you now live is integrated into this marriage relationship. It doesn't matter who you were before. It doesn't matter if you were Jew or non-Jew, holy or unholy. What matters now is you're covered by Christ, brought into this new marriage relationship with God himself. That is what matters. And I wanna read one more, uh, Romans chapter nine. And the reason I can't skip this one is because this is the apostle Paul literally quoting Hosea to help uh, New Testament Christians understand that though they're not Jewish, they are part of God's marriage relationship. Paul writes this in Romans chapter nine, verse 22. So what if God desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, he's endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. So even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And then in the very place where it says to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. My point in all of this 
is you random person in Pulse Falls, Idaho, 2022, have just as much legal access to the marriage relationship with God as an Israelite would have 3000 years ago. Not because of anything you bring to the table, but because of the generosity of the person of Jesus. That Jesus has said, come to me and I will make you mine. I will be faithful to you. Now, all of this is to bring us to probably our third and, and most like, um, for me, compelling reality of like, what kind of marriage is, is God creating? What kind of marriage is on the table being presented? I would even ask like, is, is being married to God even a good thing? Especially when, when God comes from this like ancient time period when, when like, weren't marriages all just about obligation and control? Like, isn't that just what God's creating is just something to control us, to like domineer us, just like the patriarchy of 3000 years ago. And very quickly, I would just like to say, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think there's a, a difference for sure in modern and ancient approaches to marriage, right? But there's also something that we can do called chronological snobbery. Have you ever heard of that? It's where you just look backwards and assume everything in the past is not nearly as good as it is in the future. So we've got it all figured out. And unfortunately, I would say, I don't think we in the 21st century, especially in the West, have marriage figured out. In many ways, our approach to marriage is overly romanticized. In many ways, our approach to marriage is, I will love you until you stop making me happy. And then there's this great thing called no-fault divorce. And unfortunately, 44% of all marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. And people so frustrated by this now have chosen other alternatives where today between 10 and 20% of all adults live with their, their boyfriend or girlfriend or partner where they're so hurt by the current understanding of marriage, they're saying, can't we just have the good parts of marriage without any of the formal obligation? People are so hurt by today's understanding of marriage and its dysfunction that they want all the benefits but they don't know how to label it anymore. They want all the benefits, but don't want the formality. And God has something better in mind. So God has something in the ancient view that was no, not all about duty. No, it was not dull and bland. God has in mind for us a marriage that is full of romance and delight as well as loyalty and faithfulness. If I can reference Song of Solomon, which is like this weird piece of like erotic poetry, most of us don't know what to do with in the Bible. It goes like this in the first chapter just to highlight like the romance that existed in an ancient view of scripture. This is Song of Solomon chapter one, from her perspective, the bride, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine and your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the poetry steps to the side and the outsiders look in and they say, we will exult, we will rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then it shifts again. And from his perspective, he says, behold, you, my bride are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. Like, marriage in the Old Testament was not, like, there was some dysfunctional stuff about marriage in the Old Testament, right? But it was not dull and bland. There was a healthy romantic view of marriage in the Old Testament. Another story, if you're familiar with Ruth and Boaz, is this romance story in the Old Testament where 
Ruth, who's an outsider to the family of God, is brought in and, and there's this um, pursuit where Boaz, this uh, man who has the legal opportunity to redeem and marry Ruth, um, goes through this long process of le- like legally going behind the scenes in order to rescue this woman and her mother-in-law. And uh, both the Song of Solomons and Ruth and Boaz, these would have been, these would have been the cultural stories that Israel would have had in their mind when God proposes to them. When God says through Hosea, I'm married to you, in their cultural imagination would have been the literature of Song of Solomon's and the story of Ruth and Boaz. So they would have had this understanding that God is gentle and wooing, that there is such a thing as romance in marriage. And it has an elevated view of loyalty and commitment. We see God himself in Hosea chapter two, verse 14 says this. Then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. We see that there's a gentleness in the marriage of God. It is not an ancient dysfunctional approach of of duty and dullness. It is a, a healthy, integration of of all the romantic parts and and the wooing and the gentleness of lovers, as well as the loyalty and the commitment that we see in God's actions through Hosea. So if I was going to say, why does God choose marriage? Why does he choose this as a primary image for the way he wants his people to see this? I think I could boil it down to two words, love and loyalty. When God says, I feel married to you. I think it's just really simply him saying, I love you and I will be loyal to you. What else is marriage but that? I believe he actually wants and he actually loves his people. And you, Christian, he actually wants and he actually loves you. Now I was talking about Hosea with a couple friend of mine um, and both the husband and wife acknowledged having a hard time with this marriage idea, uh, both for different reasons. Uh, the wife, um, she says, yeah, like I love, you know, I love being married. I love being Jesus's bride, but I've had a hard time in the past when I view Jesus as my Channing Tatum or my, my Dean Martin or my Ryan Gosling, right? When I create like fantasy boyfriend Jesus, that goes south really quick. Like rom-com, right? All of those references to romantic comedies. <laughs> um, when I view Jesus as my romantic comedy, that's an unwhole picture. But when I view Jesus as my husband, as my, my groom, then as the one who would give himself for me, then something clicks. The husband who's loyal over decades and lifetime, even while I'm up and down, then something clicks. And uh, the husband, he was saying, I, I have a really hard time with this because like as a man, what does it mean for me to be a bride? Like I, I'm, I'm used to being the groom side of things, right? So what does it mean for me to like be the bride of this relationship? And so I wanna end our time with looking at Ephesians chapter five, which I think brings wholeness to both the male and the female question of what does it mean for me to be God's bride? This is Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 through 32. And it's famously um, given as instruction for husband and wives, though you'll see it's about something much more. 
Ephesians 5:22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Notice this. Very first line. Paul is making connections to the marital relationship and Jesus' relationship to his people. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Very importantly, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Everything that came before, this is how Christ relates to his people. So men and women, what does it mean for us to be in a marriage relationship with God? First, it means that we let him love us. Verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her so he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. At the beginning of that chapter, or verse 22, it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Think very clearly, if we look at this passage, if I could summarize it in a few ways, what it means to be married to God and married to Jesus is that we submit or we trust him. We trust him. We trust that he loves us. We trust his plan for us. We trust that he has interest in us. And then we return his love with our very own real affection. Men, it's easy to think of God as our king or our general or our missions commander, but I would argue that here in Hosea, as well as Ephesians 5, that he is asking us to also see us, see him as the lover of our souls, that he would be the primary place of refuge and rescue for us, that we would submit to him, trust him, become intimate with him, because he loves us and is washing us with the water of his word. He is presenting us holy and blameless. Now, here's where I'll end. I think another reason that God uses marriage as a primary image is because God is not a part-time lover. And we, as his followers, cannot treat him as a part-time lover. He's asking us to be married to him. It's not an on or off fling. It is a marriage that lasts a lifetime, a merit or a lifetime of faithfulness. But here's the good news of that sentence that God is not a part-time lover to you either. He will not treat you like a mistress or a fling. He will treat you like he is married to you. 
He will love you and he will be loyal to you over the course of your lifetime. Even when you are unfaithful, he knows it and chooses to be a full-time lover. He chooses to marry us. And all of this is a conclusion that God views his relationship with his people as a marriage. And this is very good news. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, even just the irony as I say father, uh, my default to you is father. Um, Jesus, you, I think, are teaching us in Hosea and through all of the scriptures that you also are our husband. You are our groom. You are um, the God who is wooing our hearts back to you with tenderness and mercy. Jesus, thank you for being faithful to us, for making us yours. Lord, would you help this percolate in our own hearts and minds that we would respond with faithfulness back to you. Jesus, would you transform us, please? Help us be invested in the story that you have before us. Thank you. Amen.